0: to the 2010 Justice Summit. There must be justice. I want to begin by welcoming each of you for coming uh, today and thanking you for being here. Uh, We have an incredibly exciting program. Uh, My name is uh, Jeff Adachi. I'm the public defender uh, here in San Francisco, and I'll be emceeing the first part uh, of uh, the program today. We're going to be talking about something that's called ordinary Injustice. Now if you look up the word injustice it says an unjust act and within the criminal justice system there are a lot of unjust acts that occur. We just don't hear about it. We've probably all heard that to date there have been 150 people 150 human beings who have been exonerated after being sentenced to death row. That means that 150 people in this country were tried and convicted and sentenced to death and then exonerated based on mostly scientific evidence. Some served years. Some served decades. When we hear about those stories, what we don't often hear about is how the justice system goes wrong in other ways that affect everyday people throughout this country. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about failures, like when a person is wrongfully arrested on a warrant because they have a name similar to somebody else. That happens much more often than we might think. We're talking about situations where individuals are falsely accused of crimes. Within the public defender's office, we try about 250 cases a year. And in about half of those cases, there are acquittals. And what that means is that juries agree about half the time with our assessment of the case, whether that's raising a defense or explaining what really happened in a case. We know about the failures that we've heard about in San Francisco of late, including a technician in the police department crime lab who was stealing drugs from the lab. We don't know over what period of time, but there were grams of cocaine that were missing from evidence. And that opened a whole Pandora's box of problems at the crime lab, deficiencies in every aspect of how that crime lab operated. Now, that's shocking that an individual could do that, but probably the more outrageous and shocking fact is that it went on for as long as it did and that nobody acted on it. And then just recently, we heard that there were as many as 130 police officers who have either criminal convictions or misconduct records that were not being disclosed by the district attorney in San Francisco. And that is an absolute obligation they have under the law. How could this happen? And who is affected by this? The media often portrays it as criminals walking free. But we do have the presumption of innocence here in this country. And the question that we should be asking is how do these unjust acts affect the everyday person? Because You might think, well, I'll never have any contact with the criminal justice system, what does it matter? But whether you're a juror, whether you're a witness, whether you're a victim, or God forbid, you find yourself as the accused in a criminal case, you want to make sure that there's a system in place that has integrity, that has professionalism. And this is not to say that in San Francisco we don't do a good job of creating just outcomes in cases. But these are huge problems, and they raise even greater questions. The role of the public defender is a role that's often not known. The public defender has a responsibility of defending the public. Whether we enforce the Bill of Rights, whether we ensure that the promises of the Constitution, including the right to effective counsel, are kept. Whether it's making sure that the individual is protected against the machinery of the government and the power of the government, the public defender has a role of ensuring accountability in our system. It's a difficult role because We have not been given the resources we need to do that job. From the very early days, and we'll talk about this today in the summit, the Public Defender's Office, as well as uh, Conflicts Council or assigned council, council that is assigned to represent uh, people in cases, uh, have not received the resources that we need in order to do our jobs properly. And so we're gonna talk about those failings as well. So we have a great panel. I'm so excited to introduce uh, and give you an overview of uh, what's going to happen today. We have our first panel. Uh, We have speakers from all over the country who are going to talk about injustice and how, in their experience, it affects everyday people. Our second panel is going to talk about defense attorneys and public defenders and the need to remake the image. Now, what do you think about when you think about public defender? You always think public pretender or dump truck, right? And part of that is because of the way which public defenders uh, are presented. We, You know, I'll remember that scene from My Cousin Vinny. In fact, we're going to show you a clip of it later and and how a public defender was portrayed uh, in that film. But we're going to talk about how public defenders and defense attorneys are portrayed. But more importantly, how that affects our ability to get fair trials uh, for clients. We're also going to talk about what to do about it. And we're going to be premiering uh, today, you'll be the first ones to see it, a professionally produced public service announcement about why it's important that we do what we do. And uh, that's going to be during the, the second panel. Uh, The third panel, which will be after lunch, will uh, talk about uh, the obstacles uh, to a person clearing their criminal history. It's called an expungement. And there's laws that determine when a person can uh, clear their record, Uh, but there's a tremendous obstacles in the way for a person, for example if you've been uh, convicted to sentence to state prison, there's a seven year waiting period uh, before you can apply uh, to have uh, your, your record uh, expunged through a pardon process. And so our third panel uh, will be talking uh, about, about that issue. Uh, so we've got a great program uh, for you today and uh, I know you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I'm, I'm now going to introduce uh, two speakers, two great leaders who are the heads of uh, two of the most progressive legal organizations uh, in uh, California. Uh, the first is Arturo Gonzalez, who is the president of the Bar Association of San Francisco. Uh, Arturo is one, one of the his top trial lawyers in the nation, and he's a partner uh, at Morrison Forrester. And we've had the, the um, pleasure of working with the Bar Association Uh, for uh, over the past uh, 20 years uh, to provide uh, services to people who can't afford lawyers when the public defender uh, is not available. And so we're very pleased to have Arturo here on behalf of the Bar Association.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Three days ago, in one of the most closely watched Supreme Court cases this term, Graham v. Florida, the United States Supreme Court held that the Eighth Amendment's cruel and unusual punishment clause forbids the sentencing of a juvenile to life in prison without the possibility of parole for a non-homicide crime. Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, found that such a sentence is, quote, inconsistent with basic principles of decency. I am proud to say that my firm, Morrison Forster, was co-counsel for the juvenile in that case and wrote the brief filed in the Supreme Court. This decision gives our client, Terence Graham, who had received the sentence of life without the possibility of parole for a robbery he had committed at age 17, an opportunity to demonstrate, as Justice Kennedy wrote, quote, that the bad acts he committed as a teenager are not representative of his true character, and it gives him some realistic opportunity to gain release before the end of his term. I personally understand the importance of the work that you do, but our nation's fiscal crisis threatens your very existence. As predicted 25 years ago by Chief Justice Rose Byrd, when she addressed the American Bar Association, she said the following, We have no difficulty, it seems, finding sufficient funds to build more prisons, one of California's largest industries. But each year, public defenders and private providers of quality defense battle for every dollar needed to protect this constitutional right. The Bar Association of San Francisco is committed to partnering with, not competing with, our public defenders. San Francisco is fortunate to have both a strong public defender and a bar association committed to quality representation for the poor. To best guarantee quality indigent defense in our criminal courts, a partnership between our public defender and bar association is essential. They are each other's complement, the sum of the part that makes the whole of criminal, criminal defense work so well in San Francisco. A challenge for our profession will be to ensure that cities and counties fighting seemingly endless budget deficits do not fall prey to the burgeoning business offered through websites of contract services for criminal defense. Our Constitution mandates that people accused of crimes be represented by competent counsel, not the least expensive counsel. On a separate note, a word about Arizona Bill 1070. Many years ago, when Jewish persons were told to wear yellow stars, lawyers sat silent. We know what that led to. And even then, lawyers sat silent. We must never again allow ourselves to go silent when laws are passed that threaten the basic liberties of any person or people. Today, the board of directors of the Bar Association of San Francisco will consider a resolution that I drafted to boycott the state of Arizona. We will encourage our members, member firms, and other firms throughout the state and the country to boycott Arizona. There are other places to do business, to hold conventions, or to spend vacations. In closing, it is important that we come together today to make our commitment known and public that the Bar Association of San Francisco stands shoulder to shoulder with our public defender and California attorneys for criminal justice. We will hold our lawmakers accountable if they fail to properly fund those agencies responsible for defending those accused of crimes. And we will not sit silent when politicians pass and sign draconian new laws. We are lawyers. We are proud to be lawyers. We will fight for our clients and to defend our Constitution. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Arturo. Uh, Our next speaker um, is uh, Jose Varela. Uh, I'm very pleased to announce that he was just uh, sworn in as the appointed public defender of Marin County. He's also the uh, newly uh, sworn in and elected uh, president of the California Public Defenders Association, which is the largest association of public defenders statewide, about 4,000 members. Jose.
2: Thank you very much. And on behalf of the over 4,000 members of the California Public Defender's Office, I want to thank you for being here. It's an honor to see so many people here whose lives are dedicated to making the lives of other people better. As, at the California Public Defender's Office, uh, at the California Public Defender's Association, it's a 40-year-old organization that has grown from a small unit into now one of the most powerful lobbying organizations in the country. We fight for justice in legislative committees. We fight for justice in making sure that attorneys are trained well and have the competency to deliver the kind of services that people who don't have the ability to afford counsel have counsel that are as prepared as anyone else. It is with great pride that we see our young attorneys being able to come into court and have the courage, the inspiration, and the ability to be able to deliver results that money can't buy. And that's the wonderful, wonderful thing about it. People become public defenders, I think, because they were raised on the mother's milk of three words by two leaders. I believe we were raised by the three words, we shall overcome. I believe we were raised by the three words, si se puede. an optimistic belief that we as human beings can help other human beings make their circumstances better defend themselves, and maintain human dignity in the face of onslaughts that come from every angle. We are blessed to do this work. We should never be ashamed to be public defenders. We should always be proud of what it is that we do for people, and in fact, what they return to us. We are made better by the work that we do. And may God bless all your efforts. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jose. Uh, the, the event today is also sponsored by the California Attorneys uh, for Criminal Justice. Uh, I also want to especially thank uh, the Rosenberg Foundation and Executive Director uh, Tim Szilard uh, who provided a grant uh, to make this uh, program possible. So thank you very much to the Rosenberg Foundation. And of course I want to thank all the volunteers who worked so hard uh, to, uh, to make this event uh, happen today. Now I'm very excited to introduce our keynote speaker. Our keynote speaker is, and was, the first, quote, lady lawyer in California. It's true, because when she decided that she wanted to become a lawyer, there was one problem. The law in California didn't allow it. And so she had to change the law, which he did. Now, she also wanted to go to law school right here at Hastings College of Law. But they had a policy that said only men could go to that law school. Uh, so she sued Hastings College of the Law, and she changed that. And she was the first woman to attend Hastings Law School. And when she got out of law school, there were no jobs. No jobs, so no one would hire women. So what did she do? She became a criminal defense attorney, because that was the one place where it didn't matter, and she fought harder than a man, and that was good enough for her clients. And she became one of the top criminal defense attorneys, and she practiced right here in San Francisco. She also began advocating to change laws. So she changed the laws, it used to be that in criminal trial, throughout the trial, you were shackled. You were actually shackled. And she was the one that changed that law here in San Francisco, and it later spread throughout the state. She was the first to call for a parole system out of the state prison, uh, our state prisons. Uh, she was the first to uh, change the law so that juveniles, or young people, were not housed with adults. and. We're very excited uh, that she's here. She's actually here with us today. And she also was the first one to come up with the idea of the public defender. She's the founder of the public defender. This was 80 years before the United States Supreme Court decided the Gideon case, where it held that the states had to provide counsel. And her name? It's Clara Shortridge Foltz. And Clara, are you in the house? Let's give it up.
3: <laughs> My name is Clara Shortridge Foltz. And they call me the lady lawyer. From a child I wanted to be a lawyer. And I went to my father and told him, I want to be a lawyer. And he said, You would make a great lawyer if you were a boy. So I buried that dream, but I never forgot. At 15, I met a handsome Union soldier named Jeremiah Foltz, and we eloped. We moved west to greener pastures, first to Oregon, and then San Jose, California. It was in around 1876, and I just had my fifth child. I was working at home as a dressmaker, and the sheriff came to the door and took my sewing machine for a debt that my husband owed. Well, I knew this was illegal. I'd been reading Blackstone since I was 10. So I went to the court, and I pled my own case and won. Then, after that, Mr. Foltz decided he needed to go on to greener pastures, and he left. So I realized that I was going to be the full support of myself and my children. So I decided now's my chance to be a lawyer. Why couldn't I be a lawyer? Well, it's right there in the code. You have to be of good moral character, I'm that. You have to be over 21, I'm that, and a white male. So I simply took the code, took out a white male, put in person, and called it the Lady Lawyer Bill. And off I went to Sacramento. There I was. <laughs> there I was. Now I had to, had very little money. So I was able to talk a conductor of one of the trains into taking me in the caboose for free. But I got to the Sacramento. And as I, when I arrived there at the state capitol, it was the constitutional convention. And I never saw so many men so upset well throwing tantrums over a woman, a little woman like me, just wanting to be a lawyer. Well, their faces were as red as turkey gobblers. They just could not uh, abide that whole idea. But I just kept arguing in a ladylike manner, of course. And the bill did pass on the second vote. Now, there were hundreds of these bills before uh, the convention. And they would not become law until the govern- governor signed them. Well, time was running out. It was almost midnight of the last day. I didn't know what to do. So I strolled in to the governor's office and up to his desk. And I politely told him that I would like to be a lawyer. He, had, he said, why? And I said, because that's why my lifelong dream. And why couldn't a woman be a lawyer? He signed that bill. And I became the first woman lawyer in California and the West Coast. But even though I became that lawyer, I felt I, would be, um, I could get more clients if I had a law degree. You see, I was self-educated. So I went to Hastings Law School to, to register. And they said that they wouldn't permit me to be there. Something about the rustling of petticoats bothering the male students, I don't know. So my friend and I, Laura Gordon, we sued Hastings, which included Judge Hastings, one of the great lawyers and judges of that time. And oh, they were mad, and oh, did they fight us, all the way up to the California Supreme Court. And we won, and I became the first woman law student. Now I hung up my shingle but thongs of clients did not come to my door and those who did had little or no money so I became I began to defend them and they didn't care that I was a woman they just wanted somebody who would fight for them and would win which I did a lot of but then there's also there was a few of those judges and prosecutors that were a different story when it came to being around women. I remember this one prosecutor in San Francisco. She is a woman.
4: She cannot be expected to reason. God Almighty has decreed her limitations. But you can reason, and you must use your faculties of reasoning to find against this young woman.
3: Oh my. <laughs> I am that formidable, terrifying object known as women. While he is only a poor, helpless, defenseless man. <laughs> and he wants you to take pity on him and give him the verdict in this case. <laughs> I sympathize with counsel in his unhappy condition. True. The world is open to him. He is the peer of all men. He can aspire to the highest office. He can carry a torch around the streets during the election and pay for his vote. And like Alexander, he wants more worlds to conquer. And in order to awaken your sympathy, he tells you that I am a woman and he is only a man." Now, every time... (laughs) And every time a jury voted not guilty, as they did in this case, I knew I had won not only a victory for myself, but for women everywhere. Suddenly I found myself in demand. I even tried cases in California, uh, throughout California, Denver, and New York. But something deeply concerned me about the problems in the criminal injustice system. I began to challenge the practices right here in San Francisco where they were not only shackling prisoners but they were putting them in a cage like you see at the zoo. And I, told, I took that case on and I won. I was arguing that the presumption of innocence did not allow such barbaric treatment. I also worked to improve conditions in prisons, separating juveniles from adults, and even getting women, women as matrons for women prisoners. But as I tried more and more cases, I began convinced that the only way that we could have equal and fair justice system was to provide lawyers for the poor. I called them Public defenders.
4: Mrs. Clara Shortridge Foltz who was introducing her proposed law on lawyers for the poor here at the eighteen ninety-three Chicago World's Fair.
3: Thank you. The remedies of many of the evils of the present criminal court practice lies in the election or appointment of a public defender. For every public prosecutor, They should be a public defender, chosen in the same way, paid out of the same funds as the public prosecutor. Police and sheriffs should be equally at his or her command, and the public treasury should be equally only to meet the legitimate uh, expenses. Let the criminal courts recognize upon the basis of exact and equal Justice. Let our courts be broad enough and generous enough to make the law a shield, not just a sword. And there will come to this state, as a natural consequence, all those blessings which flow from the constitutional obligations conscientiously kept and the government duties sacredly performed. That was one of my proudest moments. Over 36 states picked up the pro- program. But it was kind of troubling to me. It took over 20 years for California to open up the public defender's office. First in Los Angeles in 1916, and then here in San Francisco in 1921. So remember, you have to keep trying. Go after your dreams. I did. Work. Work. Wait if you must, but in the end, you will win.
0: Thank you very much, and that was Sharon Avey. Thank you, Sharon, for the incredible presentation. And uh, I also want to mention that she's written a book about Clara Foltz. So if you're interested... uh, if you'd learn more about Clara Shortridge faults, get a copy of Sharon's book. You can get it on Amazon or get it here in the lobby. Um, I'm now going to introduce our first panel, Ordinary Injustice. Our first panel uh, come from all over the United States, so I'm going to ask them now to, to join me uh, on stage. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to examine how injustice occurs. And we're going to be looking at not only big injustices, but small ones. And how they affect not only the way in which the criminal justice system either works or doesn't work, uh, but also how it affects the lives of everyday people. Our uh, first panelist is Amy Bach. Ms. Bach spent eight years studying courts throughout the country, and she wrote a book called Ordinary Injustice. It's really an incredible book that looks at the perspective of the justice system from a contract public defender's perspective, a prosecutor's perspective, and a judge's perspective. And she was able to come up with some brilliant insights about not only what the problems are, but what to do about it. Our next panelist is um, uh, Professor Lawrence Benner. Um, Professor Benner uh, wrote an incredible treatise studying public defender offices throughout the state of California. And so he's gonna be able to provide his expertise as to why public defender offices often are not equipped to properly handle all the cases that they have, and the challenges involved in it, and what to do about it. Next, we have uh, the public defender of Fresno County, um, Ken Kenneth Taniguchi. Uh, public defender Taniguchi has fought, fought a valiant battle uh, that's still going on, a raging battle with uh, the board of supervisors, county supervisors in Fresno County. And uh, last year, they cut his staff by uh, 12 attorneys. And at the same time, he was expected to handle uh, more cases. And the county responded when uh, public defender Tony Gucci said that he could not do any more cases uh, by trying to outsource uh, the responsibility of the public defender uh, to low-cost uh, bidders. Uh, next we have uh, John uh, Terzano, who comes from uh, uh, Washington, D.C. He is a co-founder of the Justice Project. And John recently uh, co-authored a report about accountability of both prosecutors and judges. And so he studied why prosecutorial misconduct occurs and what steps need to be taken uh, to ensure uh, that uh that, that it doesn't happen, and, and to make the prosecutor's office accountable. Uh, finally, we have Sean Webby. Uh, Sean is a reporter uh, with the San Jose Mercury News, and Sean did a series about uh, the fact in Santa Clara County they were not providing lawyers uh, at the first appearance in misdemeanor cases. And as he'll tell you about, uh, he, you know, his story and his series of stories actually changed the practice in Santa Clara. But I want to start with uh, with Amy. Uh, and uh, if you can tell us, what is ordinary injustice? And how does it manifest itself?
5: Uh, ordinary injustice happens in a courtroom uh, where there are smart, committed, hardworking people, professionals, but they are routine, routinely acting in ways that fall short that what it is that people in their positions are supposed to be doing. And they don't even realize that anything is missing or that their behavior has devastating consequences for regular people's lives. So this is really the meaning of ordinary injustice, that mistakes become routine and the legal professionals can no longer see their role in them.
0: Can you give us some examples of what you found in your eight-year saga of studying the court system.
5: Sure. Uh, The best uh, way to perhaps get into it is to tell you how I first came across it. I had just graduated law school from Stanford, and I had clerked for a federal appellate judge in Miami, and uh, the jurisdiction was Florida, Alabama, and Georgia. And I wrote a story after my clerkship for the Nation magazine, and the story was picked up everywhere. And the Nation said, I'll tell you what, if you can do this, again, we'll give you a year to write about civil rights. And to me, this sounded pretty good because I wouldn't have to make major decisions about my career, and I could just go write a series of stories about things that interested me. And I began sitting in courtrooms all across the country. And the courtroom that made me realize that I wanted to write a book was in Greene County, Georgia, which is a beautiful place. Uh, the, the, the county seat is, is Greensboro. President Bush vacationed there three times during his presidency. Uh, and I, I walked up to the stairs a little before 9 a.m. in this cute-as-a-button courthouse, and I saw the public defender there. And he's a man named Robert Surrency, who's a major character in Chapter 1. And he has tons of people swarming around him. They're uh, waving papers and they're trying to get about two minutes with him before uh, their cases are going to be called before the judge. Now, this is the way it worked here in Greene County. Robert Serency would call their name, John Smith, are you here? And then the, the John Smith would come and be told what the prosecutor was offering, and people had called and not heard back, but they didn't get any, any attention to the individual circumstances of their cases. Instead, they were called before the judge and another attorney who knew even less than, about the cases than Robert did would stand there almost like a piece of cardboard and, 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 and the people would plead guilty. Now, it was incredibly obvious in court that day that people had no idea what was happening to them. People started to cry in the middle of when they're pleading guilty and said, wait, I'm pleading guilty, but I didn't realize I I had agreed to go to jail. And and it was was really a mess. And what I learned later was that Robert was a contract defender. And he had a private practice, a full-born private practice, where he was representing, uh, you know, people who paid him money. And then he had, um, earned a sum of money from the county, and he had to represent as many county, as many people as the prosecutor was going to charge. And during a uh, a two-year period, he had represented twice the number of people that the American Bar Association recommended as the absolute maximum. Now, I, 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 there was something else that happened that day in court, and this is extremely important. I was sitting there, and there were these long, dark, wooden benches, and everybody was was sort of creaking because the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney were all huddled together at the front. And now... We, all you could really hear in court was the creaking of the wooden benches. You couldn't hear anything that was going on. And I was trying to take notes for my story. And next to me was this guy. His name is Steve Bright, and he's head of the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta. And he'd come because I told him I was doing this story, and he had been suing uh, different counties across the state saying that they were providing uh, um, a lack of indigent defense, uh, quality defense, and he said, well, I'll come sit with you. So he turns, Steve turns to me and he says, Amy, you, you're trying to take notes for your story. You can't hear anything. Why don't you ask the judge to speak up? And I said, <laughs> Steve, I'm not going to do that. I'm here as a, you know, a, a neutral, you know, reporter. I'm a journalist. I, I'm not going to make myself, I don't want to raise a ruckus. So we're sitting there and I'm trying to take notes and I can't hear anything and the whole thing is kind of pointless and so all of a sudden Steve, who has this deep booming voice and and in this long lanky form sort of raises himself halfway up and he says, Your Honor, if you wouldn't mind, please speak up, we can't hear, thank you very much. Okay, so the whole place like whoosh, like turns and looks at Steve. And we're sitting there, and and, and uh, as, as rustling and as, as commotion as it was before, now you, like, you can't hear a pin drop, okay? You could hear a pin drop. It was just s- silence. And Steve says, and, and the judge says, Who are you? Come before me. I, 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 I want to I know what you, what you want. And Steve st- again goes like this. Your Honor, we can't hear. If you wouldn't mind, please speak up. Thank you very much. And sits back down. <laughs> So the judge again calls him to to come before him So Steve, you know, walks over, crawls over everybody's legs And gets before the judge And he takes over the courtroom And he says, Your Honor, we're all here We're missing work We've left our children in the care of others This is a public hearing And we would like to hear So if you wouldn't mind, please speak up and the place goes wild. Everyone's cheering and saying, that's right, this is a public hearing, this is my right, I want to hear. And everyone's, the place goes, people are clapping, and the judge is pounding on the gavel, and the judge says, all right, all right, there's a lot of interest here today, we're going to take a 15-minute uh, break, and we're going to come back, and, uh, and, and I'll, I'll figure out what to do. So 15 minutes later, by the, by the way, in the break, everybody's coming up to Steve, and they're like, you know, shaking his hand, begging him to represent them, saying they'll they'll ditch their lawyer. So, so, so she comes back and she puts up on a microphone, okay? And so for the rest of the day, everybody could hear. But I went back to that court the next day and Steve was gone and so was the microphone. And I went back to this court for weeks on end for the next five years because I wrote um, a, a whole chapter about this community and there was never another microphone, and there was always that huddle. That huddle is what my book is about. It's about people who who work in the system who become more attached to each other than they are to the jobs that they're supposed to be doing. And what they do is they lose sense of what it is that's important and who it is that they're supposed to be protecting. And instead, the justice system becomes more about them. And this really became the seed for ordinary injustice in the, the, the book.
4: Uh,
0: well, that's, that's quite a story. Uh, remember, when we go to court tomorrow, ask the judge to speak up.
5: <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, I, 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 I've been reminded by doctors that and you know, some they have to wear a a uh, sign on their their shirts that say um, you know ask me did i wash my hands you know can you imagine if the <laughs> judge had a sign that said ask me to speak up you know just
0: or ask to, me if i'm, I'm, I'm being fair
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right so you know the 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 things that you witnessed, uh, Amy, I'm going to ask uh, Professor uh, Benner to talk about what's the culprit here? Are we talking about incompetent lawyers, lawyers who don't care? Are we talking about a system that is set up for lawyers to fail? What were the findings that you made as a result of looking at public defender offices throughout California?
6: Okay, I'm going to speak more to the structural aspects of it. I think Amy's speaking to the cultural aspects uh, and the human aspects of the job. Um, Our adversary system, as you know, is based on the theory that any accused person who comes to court is presumed innocent. They're protected by that presumption. Uh, That's why, in fact, we provide counsel for an indigent person, a person who cannot afford counsel. Recent empirical research I did for the California Commission on the uh, administration, Fair Administration of Justice unfortunately paints a rather discouraging picture um, because I found that there is a fundamental disconnect between that theory and actual practice in California. And that disconnect occurs because the system, the indigent defense system, is funded by local politicians. Now, these are public officials who must make decisions, they must choose among many worthy competing concerns that are vying for those scarce taxpayer dollars. And not surprising, since most of them, at least many of them, assume most defendants are guilty, they tend to make decisions about funding indigent defense systems based on a presumption of guilt rather than a presumption of innocence. And given our current economic climate, that has resulted in a system in many counties uh, where Processing the presumed guilty is, you know, as cheaply as possible, is given a much higher priority than investigating the possibility of a defendant's innocence. And in counties with institutional public defender offices, we've seen budget cuts while caseloads continue to increase. And in an increasing number of counties, we see the fate of the indigent accused being put up for bid. Uh, by offering contracts to attorneys who will do that work the cheapest. Now, that has a profound effect on our criminal justice system because the vast majority of criminal defendants are indigent. They're not able to afford their own private attorney. And we found, for example, more than eight out of ten felony defendants were indigent and must, therefore, be provided with counsel. And we did a study of cases... Uh, looking at these systems, and we discovered that the system for providing, the structural system for providing indigent defense services in many counties is failing to perform the most basic duty required of a defense attorney, and that is to conduct a thorough investigation of the facts. That after all is what protects the innocent from wrongful conviction. Now, I think I have a graphic here that shows what we found. Um, In this study of over 2,000 cases, almost half of the convictions that were overturned on appeal because of mistakes by defense attorneys involved the failure to investigate. The failure to investigate. Now, you might think that this is a problem with the lawyers. Unfortunately, we tend to blame the problems of our system on individuals involved. And that ignores the wider systemic factors that give rise to such errors. And I think the failure to investigate is a good example of that. Because the resu- the, w- why we have this failure to investigate results not from individual lawyers so much as the inability of individual lawyers to do that job because they don't have the resources. Over two-thirds of the judges that we interviewed admitted that they had a problem in their county investigating indigent cases because they didn't have the resources. All of the public defenders that we interviewed um, and sent questionnaires to that we surveyed, all of them reported that they did not have enough adequate investigators uh, on their staff. And in fact, a number of these contract defenders don't have any staff investigators at all. The national standard promulgated by The National Advisory Commission on Criminal Justice Standards and Goals states there should be one investigator for every three attorneys. Well, we found that most offices in this state don't comply with that standard. They don't meet that minimum requirement. Some even had ratios as high as nine attorneys to one investigator. Now, that problem is then compounded by the fact that attorneys also are overloaded. More than three out of four of the public defender offices reported excessive attorney caseloads were a significant problem in their office. So what you have is a multiplier effect. If there's not enough hours in the day to investigate the cases, obviously some of the cases don't get investigated. And that's the problem, I think, that we're seeing uh, as to why some of these injustices are occurring. Now, the other problem, of course, deals with, well, why is that situation? Public defenders represent the line share of all of the cases, yet what we see, you would expect them to have rough parity with the prosecutor's office in terms of budgets, right? But we don't see that. What we see statewide is for every dollar spent on prosecution, only 53 cents is spent on average for the defense of the indigent accused. And yet in some counties, as high as 95 percent of all of the cases involve indigent defendants. Now, continuing to underfund indigent defense and continuing to tolerate excessive investigator caseloads and excessive attorney caseloads, if we continue to do that, we substantially impair the ability to provide effective representation, and that is really what increases the risk of wrongfully convicting an innocent accused.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Wow. Fifty-three cents to a dollar. That's why I'm always broke. Um, <laughs> Alright, uh, let's go to uh, public defender uh, Ken Sanaguchi. Ken, tell us, you are in Fresno. First of all, what's it like in Fresno? And, <laughs> and, and, and tell us about this battle that you've been going through where, uh, you know, it, it almost sounds like a horror movie where they're, you know, going after you with a buzzsaw. And at the same time, they've used contract attorneys to Try to undercut uh, the, you know, the, the work that your office does.
7: Well, the, the problem in Fresno—it's it's hot. Fresno is hot, of course, in summertime, <laughs> but it's hot all the time right now for me. Uh, I think the problem is just as just mentioned right now is the disparity in the funding stream for indigent defense as opposed to the other parties involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, the argument that I get is that you're all being treated equally. And that's because, you know, most of the the funding agencies, for us, is almost 100 percent from the county. While the prosecution has the benefit of grants, in fact, I believe the district attorney might have at least half of their budget is provided by grants. That's not provided to the indigent defense providers. Even the federal grants are almost all directed toward prosecution and law enforcement. So the, the problem of the vast resources that I'm facing right now is that you have grants funding the police department, the sheriff department, the district attorney's office. Those resources are all there. There is a share that the county provides to the district attorney and the sheriff, et cetera, et cetera. And that share, which for them is a portion of their funding, is almost my entire funding. So when you say you're going to cut... 13% off everybody equally well 13% for us is more than 13% of their entire budget for the other those other agencies now the the problem is that the ripple effect that we we just had here that's what happens when now they still have their investigators because they have those other agencies to provide the investigation we don't our investigators are the ones that have to be trimmed off because we can't pay for them our attorneys Again, they're primarily paid for by the county. We have to cut back our attorneys. Meanwhile, the prosecution, yes, they may have to cut back some attorneys, but they still have a lot of attorneys that are still being funded by these grant positions. So we're up against a resource that doesn't go down in the same proportional rate as we do. We get contracted further than they are. And that's the disparity right now. And that's—and what they're trying to find is a way to make it cheaper, like was was just mentioned, And those ideas are always popping up. We see it all over the state. Is it cheaper to do it by privatizing the public defender as opposed to maintaining the institutional public defender? I think what we see is that, as public defenders, maybe I'm biased in this regard, but public defenders, we have only one focus in mind, and that's to our clients. Our clients come first. Damn the torpedoes. If it's going to cost us money to defend that person, that's what we're going to do. On the other hand, when you're dealing with people that are under a contract provision, they have a conflict of interest. They're, They're for the profit margin. And now the profit margins might override going forward and doing what it takes to get the job done. And I think that's the difference in attitude a lot of times I'm seeing in the providers you have from the institutional public defenders as opposed to the contract providers.
0: Okay. Great. Thank you. And thanks very much for, for, for coming up here um, and, and being part of this discussion because we want to be able to support you and the work that you're doing. Uh, I'm going to go back to Amy before going uh, to John. And one of the things that you talked about uh, in your book is the role of prosecutors and the role that prosecutors play in meting out justice. Now, prosecutors, as we know, have a tremendous amount of power. They have the ability to decide who to charge or when not to charge. What were some of the things that you noticed or found about prosecutor offices in your book? And then I'm going to ask John to talk about um, what his study showed in terms of what prosecutors um, are doing right and what they're doing wrong.
5: Well, prosecutors pretty much have unfair discretion to decide what to prosecute and what not to prosecute. And uh, I had gone to a county in Mississippi. It's called Quitman County. And I'd gone there, actually, because there had been a front-page story in the New York Times saying the county was suing the state, saying that it didn't have enough money to defend the poor. So I get to court, and I'm expecting to see these lines of people coming out the door like I did in Georgia. But when I get there, there were only eight people. And... I I was sort of perplexed, like where was everybody, was there not a lot of crime in this place? So I start giving out my cards and uh, I start trying to learn about this place and my cell phone starts ringing off the hook. And everybody's got a story. I mean, you know, at the library, the librarian leans across the desk and she says, my home was broken into three different times in one week. And they came and they interviewed me, but, you know, they said they know who the guy was, but the case never went anywhere. So I had all these stories and I went to the clerk of court and she's a woman named Miss Wiggs. And she has a helmet of white hair and bright blue eyes and a really plain talking way of of, of, of speaking. And I said, Miss Wiggs, what is going on here? And she said, you want to know what's going on, I'll tell you. And she points to this list above her desk. And now these are lists of, of names of defendants who have been charged with a, a crime in lower court, in the Justice Court, and they've been bound over to the uh, circuit court for the prosecutor to bring to grand jury. Now by law in Mississippi, the prosecutor has to give every case to the grand jury and the prosecutor can say, you know what, there's not a lot of evidence in this case or this case has really resolved itself, I don't think you should indict. But it's the people who have to decide, the citizenry, who has to decide what gets to court and what doesn't get to court. So Ms. Wiggs said, you know, here I have 80 people on this list, and when we came to court the other day, there was almost nobody there. There were only eight people, and people call me all the time, and they tell me horrible things that have happened to them and their children. Their kids are molested, they're, uh, they were beaten up, but yet someone was, someone was arrested, but yet the crime never goes anywhere. So I asked her if I could use the list as a roadmap to see what was going on in in Quitman County. So I copied it and I started going through and getting all the case files. And what I found was that when there was a big important case, like. There was a big murder. Um, some people from outside of the county came in and, and murdered uh, an entire family and lit the house on fire. Then the DA would just go full hog and would prosecute the case to the nth degree. But when cases affected regular people, um, even a, a carjacking or, um, or or many other crimes uh, that I talk about in the book, uh, Those cases got put aside because his investigator would say, uh, I don't know if we can win this one. I I met one woman. She had been beaten up by her boyfriend underneath a bridge. Um, Her daughter and her niece were inside a, a locked car, watching, screaming to get out. And they watched as he pummeled her with a tire iron. And at the scene of the crime, according to the police report, There was a hair weave, there was one of her shoes, and there were pictures in the back of her file that showed these huge, bloody contusions on her face, like a stripe. And she was in the hospital for three days, and she couldn't work anymore because he'd beaten her so badly on her back that she couldn't bend over. She was a housekeeper at a casino. So I tried to figure out why wasn't this case prosecuted. And so I talked to the the victim, and I talked to the perpetrator's family, and I talked to the police officer, and I talked to uh, um, um, the investigator, and I couldn't figure it out. Why, why, why? What, what was wrong with this case? Why didn't this case go anywhere? So I went to Miss Wiggs again. I said, Miss Wiggs, what happened? Why do you think this case didn't go anywhere? And she said, you know what? Let me look back and see. When was the last time a domestic violence case was prosecuted? It turned out this prosecutor hadn't prosecuted a domestic violence case in 21 years. Now, this is the problem with ordinary injustice. There are these patterns that we can't see and we can't know because it's under the guise of prosecutorial discretion and and, and they don't have to make it public. And 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 and, and uh, if you lived in the county, all right, you might know. You know, I know somebody who was beaten up, but they, the case didn't seem to go in it. But nobody put together these patterns. And That's one of the great meanings of ordinary injustice.
0: What, well, well, John? Do you know Miss Wiggs? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I wish I did. <laughs> well, tell us about yours. I mean, I, I I remember reading somewhere a few years ago that a prosecutor had never been disbarred, and I think that changed this year. There was a prosecutor who was suspended for hiding evidence uh, out of Santa Clara County for the first time uh, this year in California. Um, But very rarely are prosecutors ever held accountable for misconduct or for unethical conduct. Why is that? And what did you find in your study as it related to the kind of, of misconduct that uh, that was common?
4: Uh, I think in order to uh, get to that question, um, picking off uh, on, on Amy's story, because I think it uh, illustrates uh, a common uh, problem in prosecutors' offices around the country, uh, but what three simple reforms uh, would do to help address that, and that basically deals with the Issues of transparency, accountability, as you mentioned, Jeff, uh, and the culture of, of prosecutors' offices. As both you and Amy have said, uh, uh, prosecutors are arguably the most powerful figures in our criminal justice system. Uh, they have a duty to protect the innocent, and they also have a duty uh, to convict the guilty. Uh, and and the powers that they have, you know, as you described, you know, what charges to bring, uh, what evidence. Uh, uh, to present, who are they going to charge with this crime? These are all extraordinary, enormous powers, and and uh, and we give the prosecutors this power because we believe in our public safety. Uh, uh, but along with this extraordinary power that we grant them, we believe that they're going to do so uh, responsibly, uh, and that's not what is happening in 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 a lot of cases. You know, when prosecutors abuse their power. Uh, uh, they and you know, kind of like put their thumb on the scales of justice. Uh, uh, the playing field is no longer level. It's clearly in the prosecutor's favor, uh, and and their abuse of uh, uh, and unethical and an unconstitutional uh, behavior uh, really stems from a culture that is that is about getting the conviction. Um, you know, while it's easy to point at, 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 at cases where the uh, misconduct is, is so blatant and evident, uh, I think we also have to take a look at all forms of misconduct and the inadvertent abuse that, that occurs. Now, um, when, you, when you talk about transparency, uh, the best counter to transparency uh, in a prosecutor's office is to open up the doors and windows of that office and actually see what is going on. Uh, the National District Attorneys Association, the ABA uh, uh, Prosecution Standards Committee, have all recommended that prosecutors' offices uh, adopt and implement uh, a set of policies and guidelines. Uh, moreover, they recommend that those policies and guidelines be made available uh, to the public. But despite these recommendations, uh the overwhelming majority of prosecutors' offices around the country uh, don't have established policies and procedures. And the research that we did uh, you know, we found that there are 2,300 state prosecution offices in the country. So that doesn't include city offices, county offices, and, and, and the such. And there is a relatively small number of prosecutors' offices in the country that have actually adopted the manuals. Here in California, uh, when the California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice uh, uh, took a look at prosecutorial uh, misconduct. Uh, they invited, uh, you know, comments, and they only found three jurisdictions that had uh, policies. That was LA County, Ventura County, and Santa Clara County. Um, the California District Attorneys Association wrote uh, the commission and said, all the other counties have opted not to have uh, manuals, but they do require uh, that their deputies follow court role uh, court rules and and uh, uh, and you know court decisions uh, and the law. Well, think about it. Here you got the most powerful actor in the criminal justice system. We as citizens in a community rely on them to be doing their job responsibly and ethically. Yet we have no way to measure how they're doing it because because his. Both of you have said uh, there's there's no transparency at all in that process, uh, whereby if you do have these manuals uh, and you do make them public, now you got to set a criteria by which you can hold prosecutors uh, accountable for what it is that they do. In dealing with uh, uh, accountability, uh, the second issue, I think just highlighting uh, – the results so far in two different cases. The first case is the case of uh, former Senator uh, Ted Stevens when just over a year ago uh, Attorney General Eric Holder uh, uh, threw out the the conviction of uh, uh, Senator Stevens based on uh, gross prosecutorial misconduct uh, in the case. uh, Even the judge in that case, Federal Judge uh, Sullivan said uh, you know, after repeated uh, orders from the, uh, from the court uh, to the prosecutors, the turnover evidence that in his 25 years of sitting on the bench, he had never seen a case that had more instances of prosecutorial abuse uh, uh, in, in, in his career. Now, um, uh, Attorney General Holder was right in terms of, of acting swiftly, in terms of throwing out that conviction. Uh, He also stated that the Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility uh, would investigate um, uh, the actions of the two prosecutors, Brenda Morris and uh, William Welsh. Uh, uh, Yet a year after that, a year after that, uh, we still have heard nothing out of the Office of Professional Responsibility regarding their conduct. The Department of Justice has uh, uh, very publicly talked about how they've uh, increased training in terms of uh, uh, the discovery obligations of the prosecutors, and they've issued new memos in terms of what it is that they're supposed to be doing, yet uh, they have yet to do anything regarding uh, uh, the behavior of those two prosecutors. Contrast that with a case that occurred a couple years ago, uh, that of, uh, uh, of the prosecutor Nifong in in North Carolina, where six months after uh, – uh, the charges were brought against uh, three Duke lacrosse students, and, and they were charged with rape. Uh, defense attorneys uncovered uh, evidence in the files, and, I'll get to, and North Carolina is a jurisdiction that has open file discovery, uh, I may add, um, but found evidence in the files um, uh, showing that their clients were innocent. The state attorney general uh jumped in and immediately dismissed the charges uh, uh, against uh, uh, those individuals. And in a few months after that, Nifong was disbarred um, for, you know, withholding evidence and evidence of innocence as well as improper uh, statements that he made to uh, uh, the media. So think about it. You know, here you got an attorney general that jumped in right away, uh, uh, dealt with the prosecutorial misconduct while, you know, even before the trial went on, and within six months, uh, the Attorney General filed ethical complaints against them, and NIFONG was dis- disbarred. Yet we have, you know, on the federal side, uh, the same type of activity, uh, yet we have nothing in terms of, of taking a look at at, uh, at the prosecutor's behavior. Uh, as Amy would say, and this, this occurs across the country, uh, you know, every day across the country. And as Amy would say, these are just two cases of ordinary injustice uh, uh, that occurs. Um, the third area really goes to uh, the culture of, of, of prosecutor's office and, and this whole notion uh, and, and seeking to uh, uh, convict uh, folks. Um, you know, when, when, when uh, recently... The um, current County District Attorney, uh, Ed Jagels, had uh, uh, retired, um, and one of the things that was boasted about in terms of uh, uh, his retirement um, was that they had the most uh, convictions of any county in 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 the state. Um, Two other statistics coming out of that uh, uh, office is that in the high-profile uh, child molestation cases that he prosecuted back in the 1980s, he's got uh, 26 convictions. Uh, since then, 25 have been overturned. Uh and Kern County is now paying you know, almost ten million dollars in in uh uh civil damages to the individuals and their families who were wrongfully convicted. Uh that is a culture uh of, of convict at no cost uh in 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 terms of this. Um you know, uh, how do you deal with some of these abuses? One way to deal with these abuses is, 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 like I said, you have the prosecutor's manuals. Another way is quite simply open file discovery. Uh, uh, prosecu- prosecutorial misconduct in terms of failure to turn over exculpatory evidence, uh, uh, is, is really probably the most common cause of prosecutorial misconduct.
0: We've actually got that issue here, so I'm gonna come right back to that. (laughs) Um, No, thank you, thank you, John. Um, Before I I ask, we will have an opportunity uh, for you to ask questions, so just fill out one of the speaker cards and um, at the end end of the panel uh, discussion, uh, we'll be able to ask your questions. Um, the, The third thing, area, that we wanna talk about are the courts, and judges in particular. And before I have Sean Webby explain his experience uh, with the Santa Clara courts and the misdemeanor courts, Amy, can you just tell us, there was a chapter that you wrote about a judge, and a judge who seemed like, from the way everybody described him in the system, as a great judge, but he was flagrantly violating people's rights every day, and ultimately, he was thrown off the bench. Tell us that, that
5: story. This is a story about a judge in upstate New York, where I live, named Hank Bauer. And he's a judge in a place called Troy, New York, which had historically uh, been a beautiful industrial town, but had was going through some hard times with drugs. And he... Uh, he was a judge during this period, and he got the idea that he wanted to help clean up Troy. Now, if you walk the streets with Hank Bauer, you're with a celebrity. People would uh, hang out of their car windows to be like, "Hank, you know, you need an umbrella." You know, it was that he's that kind of guy. I mean, and when I used to call him on the phone. You know, I told him I'm writing a book called Ordinary Injustice, and you are one of the main characters. And, (laughs) and he, I would, he would pick up the phone, and I could hear him smiling. Because he in his heart of hearts to this very day, and he's been kicked off the bench by the New York State Judicial Commission. But by to this very day, he truly thinks that he has done nothing wrong. And in fact, he told me that when the commission served him with fifty-one gross infractions of the law, including he gave giving excessive bails, not reading people their rights, not assigning people an attorneys, and in two different instances pleading someone guilty, without him even being in the room, he said, he looked at the charges and he said, where's the serious stuff? Now, how did this guy, how does he have this reflection of himself as, as this good judge? Now, the reason is, is because everybody in, com- in his community Thinks that he is a great judge and thinks what happened to Hank Bauer is a gross injustice. But at the same time, he did things like he gave a $25,000 bail to a man who was riding his bike on the sidewalk without a bell. And that is a crime in Troy, New York. I mean, clearly there are lots of. Little kids who, in sub, the suburbs riding their bikes on the sidewalk without a bell, but this guy was a homeless guy, and so they arrested him. They brought him before the court. They gave him a 20, he, Hank gave him a twenty-five thousand dollar bail. He didn't have twenty-five thousand dollars. He's homeless, and so he sat in jail for eight days, and then he came back and he uh, pleaded guilty. In uh, another instance, and this is really this is really the regular person that 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 is symbolic of ordinary injustice. There's this woman. Her name is Lashana Bobo. She has five kids. She's a nurse. One beautiful spring day. She's sitting out in a stoop and she's braiding a friend of hers hair. And the police come by and they say, do you realize that there's no loitering sign behind you? She says, You know, either she didn't see it or she didn't care, and she offers to get off, and instead they arrest her, and they bring her down before the judge, and they give her a $25,000 bail. She's never given an attorney, and she sits in jail for eight days. She has a relative take care of her five kids, her people from work, the nurses, they bring her socks, they bring her underwear. Eventually, she comes before the judge, she's never assigned an attorney, and she, the judge says, we'll give you a couple hundred dollars as a fine, and um, you, you plead guilty, and then we'll call it a day. She says, okay, she pleads guilty, and as she's walking out of court, she thinks to herself, screw you. I will never pay this fine. And she goes and she gets the guy that, who also pleaded guilty, the guy she's braiding his hair. And they go home and they have a big party. And they think this thing is over with. And then a couple months later, she decides to apply for public housing. And she's rejected because she has a criminal record. And she says, I don't have a criminal record. I I never committed a crime. And this is her crime that she had been loitering that day. And so she she is not eligible for city housing. So she ends up leaving Troy and moving to Virginia. This is the problem with ordinary injustice. There are these collateral consequences for these crimes and we end up paying for them as taxpayers, right? We pay for it because people can't get federal grants for, for, um, for loans for school. They, become, they go on welfare because they miss time in jail. Um, while they're, and they don't get to go to their jobs and they're fired. These are the kind of things, these the hidden costs that we rarely see. Now, one more word about Hank Bauer which is that why did why did all these lawyers love him so much if he really was doing these, these things that were against the law and against the, violating the Constitution on a daily basis? The bottom line was that when Hank saw that a lawyer cared about his client, he would make an effort to help that lawyer. So there's this one woman, um, she's a prostitute, and she has a, a lawyer who's doing her case pro bono. She keeps on getting arrested for prostitution, and um, Hank Barrow each time tried to get her help, tried to get her drug therapy. But when no one was looking, that's when the worst things happened. And there was this guy, he's kind of the town drunk, his name is John Casey, and he he would, I, I met him and he was drinking this enormous can of beer. It was like a barrel. And he told me it cost 50 cents. <laughs> and, and he, he I, I, what happened was, was that He was arrested for public drinking. He was put in jail. And Judge Bauer just said, John Casey is a plea in time served into the record. Casey wanders back into court and says, wait, what happened to my case? And the clerk says, oh, you pleaded guilty. And Casey says, okay. And he walks out. Now people often ask me, like, what do you think is the worst case of ordinary injustice? And clearly, you know, the big cases of DNA where people spend decades, you know, in in, in prison and are finally freed with per se evidence, those kill me. I mean, those, those people who, to be innocent in prison and to have a community of people who all thought that you were guilty and everybody turned a blind eye, those are horrible. But there's something about John Casey that I just find so profound that Here's this guy who succumbed to whatever he it was that the system did to him, and that they did whatever they could, and there was nobody there that stood up, no public defender. And there was a line of public defenders sitting in the in the first row of that court who could have said, "Wait, where is John Casey?" And nobody stood up. And and that's one of the problems of ordinary injustice: that the people in the courtroom become so attached to each other and get take, and protecting themselves and their own interests that they stop thinking about. The, the people it is that they're supposed to be um, protecting.
4: Wow.
0: We should have invited that judge to come. <laughs> i to see what he would say. Like him. <laughs> um, last year, a reporter uh, went into a courtroom, and uh a courtroom where misdemeanor cases were being heard. And he saw the judge in the black robe. He saw hundreds of people waiting for justice every day. What he didn't see uh, was a lawyer, and so he took it upon himself to study it, investigate it, and write about it. And I'm going to let you
8: uh, let uh, uh, Sean
0: Webby tell you uh, what happened.
8: Well, unlike uh, Judge Bauer, Amy's Judge Bauer, the the judges in Department 42 are not celebrities. They're bored. They're lonely. <laughs> There's no lawyers in the courtroom, there's no line of public defenders to stand up and make objections or advocate for any of the hundreds and thousands of people who go through this courtroom and the other misdemeanor arraignment courtrooms in Santa Clara County because they've never had them there. There's no lawyers. So what happens is I go into the courtroom and I hide behind a very broad-shouldered deputy so the judge doesn't recognize me, and I listen and I watch and what's happening is is the judge comes in and everybody rises and and the judge goes through the colloquy the speech that she gives in this case it was a she Um colloquy to the defendants there waiting who've been waiting all weekend in many cases to get out because they're there for public intoxication charges or failure to appears or warrants that they've been picked up on the weekend and she says her colloquy and i'll exaggerate a little bit just to make my point is she comes up with a colloquy and she goes All right, you are here charged with a crime, and you have the right to waive counsel. If you want to waive counsel, if you want to waive counsel, then I'll do the deal for you right now. And if you want a public defender, you can get a public defender. Okay, let's go. (laughs) And then what happens is a long line of guilties. Guilty, 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 guilty. 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 Incontinent. Guilty. 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 No continent. Guilty. 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 So I'm sitting there and I'm an amateur. I'm not a lawyer like you guys, okay? But even I'm like saying to myself, what the hell's going on here? And so I go to many of these arraignment courts and I see exactly the same thing. And so I start to ask around and ask what's happened here in Santa Clara County. And basically, historically, they just The the public defender's office has never put anybody there. The prosecutor the district attorney's office has never put anybody there. And it's almost like a, a quiet agreement between the two not to spend the resources. The reason I was there in the first place was because San Jose, inexplicably to us, had become like Las Vegas. What we've been looking into were these public intoxication charges. And if you don't know, in the state of California, you can be arrested for public intoxication if you are so drunk or so high on drugs that you're a danger to yourself or to others, and it's up to the police officer to decide whether or not you fit that description. So I was looking at a federal civil rights lawsuit that alleged that the police were misusing this law in San Jose to basically clean up the streets. And so we asked, out of curiosity, how many people every year does San Jose Police Department arrest for public intoxication? And the public information officer of the San Jose Police Department got back to me and said, 5,000 a year. And I said, and I was sitting with a cop at the time, and he said, your guy just told me 5,000 people got arrested a year, right? I mean, and he goes, it's a mistake. He put a zero on at the end. Call him back. So I called him back, and I said, is it 5,000 a year? I want you to double, triple check this. It's 5,238 a year, I think, or something like that. So we were curious, to say the least, about what the hell was going on in San Jose. And uh, we started to look into these charges which are called 647Fs in California. And we also started to look at other discretionary crimes. By discretionary crimes, I mean the crimes which police are the arbiters of whether or not you've reached the probable cause in this case. And we found out that San Jose was just busting people right and left for public intoxication, for resisting arrest, for disturbing the peace, and all sorts of crimes. And the disparities, the racial disparities, were off the charts when we compare them to other cities. For instance, in public intoxication charges, there was 57% Latino people being arrested. And we have about 30% Latino people in the city. And the other racial disparities were off the charts as well. Well, where were all these 5,000 people? And when you add the other crimes going, they were going to Department 42, where the woman, the judge was going, and you can, and everybody's going, guilty, 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 incontinent. <laughs> so we started doing a series of stories. Now, I keep hearing these really depressing stories about how you know, you're dealing with all these budgetary cutbacks. But when we did our story about, um, in the public defender's office, when we did our story about this, exposing this, There was a wave of embarrassment, to say the least, and within a couple months, the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors had added a million dollars a year to the Public Defender's Office to add lawyers in a lot of the misdemeanor courtrooms, and Raymond courtrooms, and starting Monday, um, I believe that they're going to start putting lawyers into Department 42.
0: I mean, it raises a, a really interesting. And, and by the way, that's really incredible. I mean, that. I mean, this practice has been going on for years and years and years of not providing lawyers, and you were able to change it through, uh, through your stories. I mean, it's it's really a sea change. And because of that, I mean, there'll be thousands of people now, uh, who will get counsel. Um, and I guess one of the questions I, I have is, is, as a journalist, how are you able to work, with defense attorneys or public defenders uh, to bring light to ordinary injustice. I know Amy has written this book, and we hope that, uh, in fact, you just won the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award. So I'm going to get this message out there. But, you know, how how, how can defense attorneys uh, or people who work in the system, uh, it could be a clerk, could be a bailiff who becomes aware of something that's happening. Um, make that known and work with, the, with journalists such as yourself who want to change things.
8: I generally bring everybody out to lunch <laughs> or to a bar <laughs> or to both. Um, you know, the journalists and police officers have this classic Cold War that's been going on for years. And there's even a cold war between defense attorneys and journalists, also less so, um, certainly between prosecutors and reporters. And I find that if uh, I write a story that they just can't come back and say this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. Um, If they're faced with the fact that I've busted my butt to get everything right and gone to them, whether it's defense attorneys or prosecutors or whomever, and really tried hard to represent their viewpoints, then they just don't have an argument against going out to a restaurant or a bar with me. They don't. Um, And, you know, we rely a lot on secret scroll sources and Mm -hmm. people whispering things to us, and uh, and, uh, that's always part of the dynamic. But I find in Santa Clara County that once you develop a reputation for trying hard to understand all the things that you people learned in Hastings, and asking stupid questions over and over again. Is there is there a plea called incontinent? <laughs> right. If you ask these questions over and over again, after the laughter stops, right? Eventually, they describe to you what no contest means, and and they bring you through the process. And even the judges down in Santa Clara County, the ones who were giving the board colloqu- the colloquies, um, and the judges who would turn to defendants in that courtroom and say, "I'd like to get this resolved today." which basically meant plead guilty or no contest, um, they talked to me, too, Mm. grudgingly.
0: Mm. All right. So watch out if you ask someone out for a drink, huh? Right. (laughs) Okay. Um, Professor Benner, I know that in your study, one of the things that you found was that there was a tremendous amount of pressure that came from the judges to move these cases along. Can you just
6: talk briefly about that? Sure. Does does this still work? Put up the next one and just go to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the things that we found that was very disturbing in our our study was that nearly three out of four public defender offices uh, reported that they had been pressured by county commissioners to cut costs. Um, A good example of that uh, I just recently, uh, it was recently reported that the Sacramento County Public Defender's Office is now facing a cut of a third of its budget, and yet they're already their caseloads, their attorney caseloads, are already at twice the number that the national standards permit. Uh, so you've got that kind of economic pressure coming down. There's also another type of pressure, which really uh, comes from the um, lack of independence, professional independence, of the way we structure our our indigent defense systems, our public defender offices, and especially our contract systems. Um, When I was doing research for the uh, Fair Commission, I interviewed uh, the chief defender of a Metropolitan Public Defender Office, and they told me that when they were hired, they they were brought into the office. Because who hired them? They were not elected. Uh, They were selected by the chief operating officer of the county, whose main bottom line is economics, not justice. And they said, this is the budget you're going to be given. You either do the job with that budget or we'll get somebody else. Are you willing to take the job? And that was the conditions that were made very bluntly. Um, I happened to be on a panel uh, that vetted people for the chief public defender in San Diego. Uh, I was the lone academic. Everybody else was an insider. And everybody was talking about stakeholders and how we wanted a team player. Uh, Talk about the culture. I think the culture makes. The person, as well as uh, you know, that's you 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 hire somebody that's going to be a team player. We need independence, and uh, you know I'm not sure that I would go for the election everywhere in Troy, New York. It might not work in San in San Francisco. You've got an intelligent electorate because uh, look who you have selected. Uh, so that works, but I think independence is very important. Also, you have to be independent of the judges who put their finger on the selection of the public defender and especially contract defenders, we found they were intimately involved in selecting the people that would appear before them. We found that 90 percent of the public defenders that we surveyed uh, reported judicial pressure to expedite cases. Now, what that means is, when you need a continuance because you are overworked and you are understaffed and you haven't got around to investigating this case yet, the judge says, "No, you've had enough time. I'm not going to give you any more. We need to move things along. This train that has to be speedy, uh, you know, um, is. I think that's a real problem. Justices are complicit with the injustice that occurs when underwork, uh, under, under." Um, staffed public defender offices aren't given the resources to do uh, an adequate investigation. So I think those are those are definitely big problems that we see. Yeah, you, you know, you raise a very interesting
0: point about, you know, whether the public defender should be elected or appointed. And San Francisco is the only county that elects a public defender. Let me ask, ask you this, um, public defender Taniguchi. You were appointed, and I saw that when you made your case, uh, the you know, supervisors of the, the the county council uh, basically accused you of, of mismanagement. And uh, they, they, they cut 12 attorneys and then pointed the finger at you saying, well, you have a $300,000 deficit, therefore you're a terrible manager. I mean, you know, and in, 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 believe me, I, I feel your pain. I went through that last year. But I'm curious to know, because you're appointed, what pressures do you feel uh, in order to stand yeah. up for your office um, the consequences you know to to your your
7: career well frankly uh, I think you have to have a you have to have the mindset that your ethical obligations to your clients come first and if that means you're next on the line so be it if you haven't got the guts for that then you shouldn't be taking a job as an appointed public defender. Now, I've been – I went through that whole whole circus. Uh, what it comes down to is, yes, there are two prevailing or competing factors involved. Just just mention right now, you know, you're a department head. You're supposed to administer the office. You're supposed to watch out for the budget and et cetera, et cetera. But the budget comes second to the rights of the uh, accused, the people that you represent. There is no – and someone asked me one time, that I, or, or question whether I was conflicted as to where my loyalties lied and I said, I'm not conflicted at all. My loyalties lie only in one direction and that's to represent the people that I'm appointed to represent. So when they say that, you know, you better cut this, you better cut that because that's good for the county. If it's not good for my client, it's not going to happen. All right.
0: I also wanted to acknowledge Paulino Duran. He's the public defender of Sacramento, uh, who's here, and John D'Ignacio, uh who is the um, – he runs the contract defender program in San Mateo, and I know they're both here. So thank you very much. Um, you know, I, I talked a little bit about the situation that we, we, we had here in San Francisco, where we learned that there was a lab technician that was stealing drugs you know, from the lab. This was going on um, apparently for some time. We don't know exactly how long. But what was alarming is that uh, a prosecutor, the head of the the narcotics unit in November, uh, told uh, the supervisors within that office that there was a problem with this witness, that this witness was unreliable. And yet there was not a criminal investigation opened until um, February. Likewise, the sister of the technician called the police and told them that she had been to her sister's house and found um, vials uh, that appeared to be from the crime lab of, of cocaine. And again, nothing was done, uh, even though there, there, there was, uh, the police did look into it uh, as soon as they re- received the report. There was a a recommendation that there be a criminal investigation, and then nothing happened. It went to the assistant chief, and nothing happened uh, for, for several months. Uh, Starting with with you, John, but this is a, a question really for everybody. You know, how could this happen? How does it happen? And when we talk about ordinary injustice, systematically we have a situation uh, here where an entire office uh, of prosecutors uh, didn't run record checks on police officer witnesses, as many as 130 um we haven't seen the records yet, but show that they have convictions or records of misconduct that was not disclosed. And under the law, um, it's required that the prosecutor disclose this information uh, to the defense because we do not have access to it. We can file a motion to receive certain acts of misconduct, but my understanding is that the evidence that was withheld uh, was was not uh, accessible to the defense, even through that process. So we have a systematic failure of the district attorney's office in San Francisco to provide um, people with this evidence. And it can make a a huge difference in a case when you're talking about credibility if you have an officer who has been convicted of a crime. And certainly, you know, I don't think anybody would want an officer on the street uh, who had been convicted of a serious crime.
4: John, any any insight or thoughts on that? I think it comes down to several things. First is the culture of the office. Uh, you know, again, this, what you see in a lot of prosecutors' offices is this win at all cost mentality, and it's all about conviction rights. It's not about what the real job is, and that is to seek justice and the truth. Uh, and the other part of the problem is, uh, uh, there is a reluctance uh, uh on the part of prosecutors and to some extent uh, uh judges especially when you take a look at the uh wrongful conviction cases to admit that they have problems or or that they have made mistakes uh and and that is one of the most difficult things to really try to to overcome uh all, as has been discussed by uh several of the other panel members all the stakeholders in our and our criminal justice system and in the courts have an interest in moving things along. Uh, and the minute you try to throw some type of change in that process, uh, that, that screws things up. And, 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 you know, uh, uh, and that knocks the system off the rails, if you will. Uh, and, and when you have prosecutors that are uh, covering up, withholding uh, evidence, uh, uh, and, and not allowing the doors and the windows of their offices to be open, you got a very, very serious problem. And we as a community, uh, people, citizens in a community have a, a, a right to demand that that change. You know, I think that we as, the profession itself uh, have done an abysmal job in terms of holding people accountable in criminal cases. In, in civil cases, attorneys get sanctioned all the time for discovery violations, uh, but very rarely do you see, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, uh, any prosecutor or, for that matter, uh, defense attorney if, if he or she is incompetent, uh, get brought before. Before a, a state bar disciplinary uh, uh, proceedings and actually engage, you know, taking a look at the conduct, not like what happens in, in a lot of prosecutorial misconduct cases where everything is made a determination on the appellate level on whether or not the misconduct was harmful or harmless. What we need to do is take a look at the misconduct. Because what happened in the knife case happens in prosecutors' offices and in court cases around the country on a daily basis. That is ordinary injustice. This guy gets disbarred for misconduct that maybe on a scale of 1 to 10 is somewhere around 5 or 6, and somebody at the other end of the spectrum whose misconduct may be a 9 or 10 skates free. Uh, but we need to be looking at the conduct. We need to be opening up the offices. We need to be asking the questions, uh, like Jeffrey says, and, and, and getting the media involved there and, and not be hiding behind this uh, cloak of secrecy. Thank you. Um,
0: we, we're now going to turn to uh, some questions from the audience. If you do have questions, uh, please write them on a card, and you can give them uh, to any of the uh, ushers. Um, this is a, a question uh, regarding a, a similar crime lab controversy in uh, Riverside County. And it, the question is, have judges here barred admission of such evidence at trial? If so, uh, how does the Public Defender's Office uh, address that? Um, the the uh, judge who heard uh, the motions in this case uh, has decided that most of the uh, materials that the prosecutor um, was not providing on the basis that there was a criminal investigation going on involving the technician who was stealing drugs uh, has been released. And So we're still at a point now where we're learning about uh, what evidence the prosecutors had, what they withheld, and we will be making motions and we've already started making motions uh, in some cases, to withdraw pleas, to overturn convictions. And one thing that I think gets lost in some of the coverage is that people think, well, you know, well, who cares if somebody was stealing drugs? Uh, is' that better for your client because then there's less drugs? The problem with this this crime lab is that when you start looking at the evidence um, that was coming back because they would do a retest of the evidence, in some cases there were more drugs. In some cases there were less drugs. Um, In in some cases, uh, there were uh, problems with the uh, results, uh, whether the results were a false positive or a false negative. Um, And when you're talking about the integrity of a crime lab that's in charge of deciding the taxpayer money, who's guilty and who's not guilty, and the process is flawed, you can't trust anything that comes out of that lab. Uh, We had a a DNA sample that came out in uh, December. Where uh, there were the DNA of two technicians found in the DNA sample uh, that that was tested, and you know the the irony is that we had made a number of challenges uh, to the crime lab requesting the audit. For example, there was an audit in November that showed that they 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 flunked their their accreditation, and we were trying to get that from, and we had to go to court because they wouldn't turn it over. And the judges were telling us, hey, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. There's, you know, there's nothing here. You know, little did we know. There was all this bubbling underneath. And so, you know, it, it, it's true that, you know, the, the, the onus or the burden is on the defense because once we have this information, we have to go find all our clients. We have to file these motions. And it's a tremendous amount of, of work that we have to do. Um, but um you know, what we need to do is to make sure that there's a process so people who were convicted based on this evidence uh, can bring their cases uh, back to court. Okay, our next question from the audience is uh, to, to Sean Webby. It says, in, in Santa Clara County, in San Jose, when people plead guilty uh, to misdemeanors, uh, what happened? Uh, did they go to jail? Uh, for how long? Um, what type of crimes?
8: One of the chief dynamics that was happening in these misdemeanor arraignment courts was that many of the people were faced with what we call the Hobson's choice between staying in jail sometimes up to a week or even longer waiting for a public defender to get to their case or just get out right then. Because the judge was basically saying plead guilty, go to 10 AA meetings, what's the big deal? You know, they didn't say what's the big deal but that was the impression, right? And so everybody was taking the deal. I mean, it was nuts. You could even see them almost talking to each other. You could see everybody sort of had collectively decided, take the deal. It's not a bad deal. Why stay in? What's the big deal about a misdemeanor conviction? Well, I think that Amy pointed out, I think very eloquently, it's a huge deal for a misdemeanor conviction. 5,000 people just on 647F convictions a year coming out of that courtroom and God knows how many other guilty convictions with immigration uh, consequences, sometimes deportations, uh, housing implications, job implications, it was it was amazing at the at the damage basically that was coming out of that courtroom. Now, were some of the people were pleading guilty? Guilty, of course they were. But the bottom line is is that you know you didn't have an advocate there for them, nor did you have a prosecutor for them. The dialectic wasn't working. There wasn't. There wasn't representation. There wasn't advocacy for the people. There wasn't advocacy for the proce- for the for the uh, for the process for the people or for the, the client, the defendant, and the judge took all those hats on at once. And I think that even they acknowledged that they weren't doing a great job of it. So, in answer to your question, in a long-winded way, you know, most people uh, avoided jail on some of those charges, like public intoxication. Uh, but they ended up with convictions a lot of people went to jail too
0: thank you the next question is is for uh, Amy um, how can we talk about ordinary injustice without talking about the inherent problem of plea bargains and how uh, the you know use of plea bargains undermines the fact-finding process or the truth-fighting process of the criminal justice system
5: right I um. I gave a talk at NYU to a small group of criminal justice law professors. And this one professor stood up and said, you know, why didn't you recommend in your conclusion that we get rid of plea bargaining and we have trials for everybody? You know, clearly, all all of these plea bargains, the majority of them are inherently coercive. And my answer is that if you got rid of plea bargaining, and that's like saying you know 50% of all marriages end in divorce, we should get rid of the institution of marriage because it obviously doesn't work. You know, you know, it's such, so much a part of our system that if we turned it on its head, that the first of all the, people say that the system would collapse, but it's also just. it's it's just an inherent part of the fabric of American society and our judicial system. So given that this is the system that, that we work with, I believe that a plea is not inherently coercive. A plea bargain can be a good deal for the defendant if his individual circumstances are looked at. And what public defenders do every day is they talk to their clients, they do investigation, they uh, they, they they negotiate with the prosecutor. And if uh, a deal is given where it's one-fifth of the punishment because the court spends one-fifth of the time, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing but what happens is and where it gets lost is that people don't have the resources to do that investigation they don't have the resources to talk to their clients or there is this kind of a courtroom culture that I talked about in Greene County where it's let's just get this train through and let's this fast food justice and people's individual circumstances aren't looked at that's when uh, there's a serious problem Jeff if I may
4: uh Ninety five percent of the criminal cases in this country result in plea bargains, which means that the system itself is ripe for abuse. And that's part of the problem uh with it if if you don't have a, a competent defense attorney challenging that because as we know, prosecutors will overcharge, they don't have to turn over exculpatory evidence while they're engaging in negotiations. Uh and you know and, and so they can force you know, sometimes, or, uh, you know, these plea bargains, uh, on individuals. And that's why it's incumbent for the defense attorney to really challenge when they're negotiating, uh, with the prosecutor, uh, uh, in a, in a plea bargain, uh, instance and, and really push for the, all the stuff in the prosecutor's files and let them really disclose what they truly have.
6: Jeff, can I just add one point? We, we found that the overwhelming majority of cases are disposed of at a uh, felonies are disposed of as what's called the FDC, the Felony Disposition Confer- uh, Conference in, in San Diego. And across the state, everybody has this prior to the preliminary hearing, prior to any testing within, in San Diego, it's seven days after arrest before anybody's had any time to investigate. I think plea bargaining with a caveat, that it be fully investigated before you plead the client guilty. Um, Because there are people that will plead guilty that are not guilty. I I love the woman that you talk about in your book whose husband broke the leg of the infant child and uh, threatened to beat her up, so she took the fall uh, and was going to plead guilty even though she had a duress defense. Um, So uh, I think that the failure to investigate, again, comes into whether plea bargaining can be reasonable in our system. Right now, it's not rational.
0: Okay. Just a a couple of quick questions here from the audience. Um, The problems that you're outlining with respect to the adult criminal justice system, are they also true of the juvenile
4: justice system? in the work that we have done at the Justice Project, absolutely, and sometimes, uh, uh, even more egregious. Uh, it's a lot easier, you know, in, in, in terms of, uh, uh in a lot of cases, you know, you don't have, uh, juveniles are without attorneys, just as in, uh, misdemeanor court and felony court. You get a lot of meet em and plead at times. Uh, uh, but, you know, the ability to, uh, uh, intimidate a juvenile uh is truly extraordinary. I mean, when the Supreme Court outlawed or banned the execution of juveniles uh six years ago, part of the reasoning was based on science and, and the development of an individual's brain, which science has now shown, continues on till One's early twenties. And so you're talking about individuals that are extraordinarily vulnerable, uh, when it comes to the pressures of any type of adult in authority, uh, pushing them one way or the other. Sounds like that could be Amy's next book. <laughs> so I, that's all the time we
0: have for, for this panel. We're going to go straight into the second panel. I want to highly recommend Ordinary Injustice." This is my copy. i want to have Amy sign it. Uh, but you can uh, find the book uh, in any bookstore here or on a- Amazon.com. I want to thank all of our panelists for coming uh, from such great distances to be here in San Francisco. <laughs> thank you. We'll go directly into
3: our second panel.